We do a lot of social things because patent attorneys work in a very insular way. Even within their firms, they will work very privately, very carefully, because they are the guardians of their clients' inventions and creativity, and they can't share that. So their lives are very insular in that sense. So the community without work is very important to them. So um, so that's the, the fourth thing that we do. It might not be everyone's understanding of what a purpose is, but it works for us. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Lee Davies, CEO of SEPA, the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Lee outlines how they found the four words that are their purpose and are now the framework for their strategy. He shares what they did to be able to operate to a wider social purpose and describes how he prepared to lead their organizational transformation. Well, Lee, thank you. uh, Thank you for joining us uh, on The Purposeful Strategist. You're the chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Could you tell us a little bit about what that does and why it exists and how you see your role in it? Yeah, absolutely delighted to be on. Thank you so much for having me. So, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the Chartered Institute of Patent Attorneys. Uh, we pronounce it SEPA. It was founded in 1882, so it's uh, it's certainly the oldest professional association based solely on intellectual property, uh, and it's one of the oldest organisations of its type in the UK. Uh, I'm going to tell you, Belden, that its purpose is quite simple. In its charter, it describes itself as the professional and representative body for intellectual property practitioners in the UK. Those practitioners work in patents, designs, trademarks, and other forms of intellectual property. And CEPA exists to promote the education, standing, training and continuing professional expertise of intellectual property practitioners and to establish, maintain and enforce high standards of professional conduct and compliance with the law. Now, I know we're going to unpack that throughout this podcast because I've just had to read that out from what's on our website. I can't remember it. So for me, it doesn't stand up very well. And we'll um, we'll maybe talk about that in a bit. But let, let me let me finish telling you perhaps in more real terms, what what SEPA does. We we were established um, in 1882, and then we achieved the grant of our Royal Charter by Queen Victoria in 1891. And unlike the majority of professional membership associations in the UK, we've not gone down the road of becoming a company. We've not gone down the road of becoming a charity. So we're, we're not governed by charities law. We're not governed by companies law. We're quite unusual in that we only exist on the basis of our Royal Charter. It's that that we draw our identity from. So we're only answerable to our members and through the offices of the Privy Council, whoever the monarch of the day is. So that's our two senior bosses, our members and the Crown. Now, clearly, we're obviously bound by all sorts of legislation, employment law, health and safety legislation, all of those things. But in terms of its governance structure, which is one of the things that I found most difficult to understand when I came to SEPA, 10 years ago, its governance structure is the thing I found the most difficult to get a handle on because it's quite unusual to be owned entirely by your members and to not have any other form of corporate structure. And I think it does have an impact on how we describe who we are and what our purpose is. So so you were saying we could unpack that purpose and I want to do that. But 
before we get to that, there's sort of two things I'd like to touch on. One is just to hear a little bit about you and your background and how you got to see Bern. What drew you there and sort of that journey? Oh, sure. The first thing I should say is I'm not a patent attorney. It's quite unusual in UK professional bodies for the senior bod to not be of the profession. And that's something I would really like to see change in the UK, because I think actually to lead an association, you don't need to be of that profession. You need to be very, very good at leading associations. But how I got there. So quite an interesting career pathway. So I started my working life on a building site in Portsmouth as a labourer. I left school with very few examinations, which was strange because... I'm a bright person. And then I got offered the chance to go and interview for a plumbing apprenticeship. I had no desire to be a plumber. I was 16 and it remains to this day probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. Uh, Throughout my apprenticeship, I I won national awards. So by the time I was 21, I was offered the opportunity to do some part-time plumbing teaching at the college I I learned at in, in Portsmouth. And I fell in love with teaching. By the time I was 27, I was head of one of the largest mechanical and electrical engineering departments in the country. And by the time I was 30, I was the head of building civil and mechanical engineering at that college and also a member of the college's senior leadership team. Uh, You'd call it a vice principal now. It wasn't the title I had then. So having left school with those two O-levels and a bad GCSE, I was now the proud owner of a teaching qualification, the Cert Ed. I had a good honours degree and I was halfway through my first master's. I've got two. I left Tyburn College to go and run an organisation called the Workers' Educational Association, an educational charity in the UK. I was the regional secretary, so regional chief exec of that, and fell in love with community outreach education. I had something like about 450 part-time teachers. So teacher training was really important to me. And I gained a real interest in teacher professional identity So much so that I went on in 2004, 2005 to found an organisation called the Institute for Learning, which was the first professional body for further education teachers. I didn't intend to do that. I joined it as one of its founder members in 2004 and in 2005 became its exec director. It really was two people in a back office with a few hundred members. When I left it to join SEPA in 2012, we had 85 staff, 185,000 members, and were one of the biggest professional associations and regulatory bodies in the UK. So over those seven years, managed to grow that significantly. I didn't really want to come and work with patent attorneys. It wasn't necessarily my choice. I was headhunted for the role. SEPA found itself in a position where it had two senior leaders at that time. It had a general secretary type role and a general manager type role. And both were retiring within six, seven months of one another. And they decided to roll those two roles together into a, into a chief executives type position. So I'm the first chief executive of SEPA. I walked into SEPA first day on the job and struggled to find what I understand to be a membership association. I struggled to see it in the staff. I struggled to see it in the way the members related to it. And I knew in 2012, I had quite a job on my hands. And I no longer have that job on my hands. SEPA ones brilliantly. Probably shouldn't say this in case any of my members here. It could probably do it without me now. Mm, mm. So when you said you, you struggled to see a membership association, what would you have expected to see that you didn't see? Well, the first thing I would have expected to see was at least one probably many more members of staff who had the word membership or association in either job title or job description, but there weren't. If you joined SEPA back in those days, you sent a letter. It's 2012. Websites existed, but with with SEPA, you were sending in a letter 
The letter was dealt with by the clerk of the general manager. And when I walked around and talked to people about how they engaged with the membership, well, they didn't. They never left the office. The straw that broke the camel's back for me was the telephone system. This, this sounds odd, but listen, there, there is a point to this story. The, the telephone would ring. If it wasn't answered by my, I, I called her my personal assistant, but she was the clerk to the, the previous manager, it wouldn't be answered. It, you would hear it hunt around the office. You would hear the phone system hunt around the office and no one would answer it. So the next staff meeting, I just asked a question. I said, I don't understand. If, if Anna doesn't answer the phone, why doesn't the phone get answered? Well, it'll be a member. And that's not our job. Finance doesn't talk to members. Events doesn't talk to members. Publications doesn't talk to members. You know, continuing professional development doesn't talk to members, which is actually quite bizarre. Talk about the first 100 days, don't you? And I didn't get that far before I knew that I had to do something quite fundamental, really, to change the way that SEPA was working. And I knew that I couldn't do that with the staff that I had on board at the time. We're not a big staff. We're 20-odd staff, but we're extended by many, many, many volunteers. There's a big volunteer management job that you do at SEPA. But also we have many fractional and part-time people, assessors, examiners, and so on. So so we're a much bigger organization than that. But there's only a core of 20 staff. There are only two of those staff here now who were working when I came to SEPA in 2012. And I had achieved that turnaround within about two years. Clearly, the only way I could affect any change was to move people out who didn't see themselves as wanting to be in a membership association. Mm, mm, yeah. I think that maybe sort of starts to take us into the question of purpose. What to you is organizational purpose? You know, how would you define it? How's it different from or the same as vision, mission? What a great question. I mean, for me, purpose in a membership association is the ability for any one of your members at any time to tell very quickly and very simply and very easily what the organization's about. It's about being able to sum up, for me, uh, in three to five words is the um, is the task I generally set people. But to be able to sum up what the organisation's about to an audience that wouldn't otherwise know in the simplest possible way. That for me is purpose. It underwrites everything you do. It is the litmus test for the decisions that you make for how you cast yourself as an organisation and how you develop. So... What are the three to five words for SEPA? The getting there is probably more important than the three to five words, to be honest. <laughs> let, let me tell you a little bit about patent attorneys and how they work first, because they are a very peculiar, they wouldn't mind me saying that, profession. So unlike all the other legal services professions, they have, a bit like teachers, they have two professional identities. So by first profession, they're scientists, engineers, technologists, and they're really highly qualified in those fields. Uh, and indeed, a master's degree is increasingly the, the benchmark that firms look for when they recruit a new patent attorney. Typical age of entry into the profession would be 26, 27, 28, after five to seven years of post-compulsory education in a, in a university. So, so a new trainee comes with all of this um, kind of high-level science-based knowledge, and then they need to learn the law. And the law for them is very niche law. The law is very much about describing invention so it's a very literal profession and the law relates to patents designs copyright trademarks trade secrets litigation it all comes back to being able to define creation innovation ingenuity 
in words. So very, very literal. So that links to three to five words in a moment. So I describe my members as being dual professionals, and it's a dichotomy of science and the law. Each part of that is essential for them, both in terms of how they become professionals and and how they continue to be professional. So I've been at SEPA two, two and a half years, and I'm starting on this process of transformation when I know I need to change the way the organisation works. And I know to do that, I need to get my members on board with what SEPA is about, because we can't keep looking back to this very dry Victorian definition of a professional body doesn't work it doesn't stand up in the modern setting you can't relate it to people without reading it so i started off with my full council and various members of committees probably 50 patent attorneys in a room i break them up into groups of no more than five and send them off and their task is define sepa's purpose in three to five words now if you say to a patent attorney the answer is three to five words Being literal, that is four. That can only be four. That is the question you have set me. So by and large, there were a couple of exceptions, but the groups came back with different versions of four words. And then we attempted to synthesize those into something that would make some sense. So when we talk about SEPA's purpose, we talk about it in four words. It's status, it's influence, it's learning, and it's community. It helps that the initials form silk with a C, not a K, obviously, but a hard C in this sense, um, which works well in the legal world. They were quite proud of that. But it means that we now understand what we're here for. We're here because our members have a professional status. We have to help them get there through a qualifications pathway, and we have to help them maintain that through however we choose to do it in terms of their continuing professional competence, continuing professional development, webinars, seminars, so on and so forth. We influence on behalf of our members. We do that nationally, and we're doing that significantly at the moment because of everything that's happened post-Brexit. We do it internationally, and we do it on many fronts. So influence is an important part of what we do. We still are a learned society, so learning is important to us. We produce textbooks, we produce journals, all sorts of things that create together a body of knowledge, the knowledge that underpins the profession. And we provide a sense of community. We're quite proud of the sense of community that we provide. We do a lot of social things because patent attorneys work in a very insular way. Even within their firms, they will work very privately, very carefully, because they are the guardians of their clients' inventions and creativity, and they can't share that. So their lives are very insular in that sense. So the community without work is very important to them. So um, so that's the, the fourth thing that we do. It might not be everyone's understanding of what a purpose is, but it works for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that may be in there, but it's not entirely clear to me, that certainly shows up in a number of professional bodies is the whole topic of standards and enforcement, compliance, regulation, whatever they call it. Yeah, yeah. So because we're a legal services professional body, There is something called the Legal Services Act. It was laid in 2007, but didn't really come into force until 2010, so two years before I joined SEPA. So legal services professional bodies have to separate out their regulatory responsibilities from their representative, if you like, their professional responsibilities. So we have a separate regulator who sets standards. I mean, we work very closely with them. Of course we do. They are regulating the profession that we serve. They are our regulator. We have to delegate our regulatory locus to them. 
they set the standards, they monitor compliance, they are the ultimate sanction if things go terribly wrong and clients need to complain. Whilst I have to supervise that in the oversight supervisor sense, so we have an arrangement where we meet and monitor the work that our regulatory body does, it means that I am free to only work on, in in the legal services world, it's the representative bit. But for me, it's the bit of a professional association that really gives me the buzz. It's the working with members outside of that hard regulatory framework on who they are, how they work, and how they become the best patent attorney they can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I've got now what the purpose is, and you've taken us through, it feels like sort of most of the story. If we looked then at your strategy, how would you describe that? And you know, what was the process to get to your strategy? So we have a three-year rolling strategic plan. I have to say it's in desperate need of review now that we're coming out of the pandemic. So now, again, SEPA didn't have a strategic plan before I arrived in 2012. And the strategic plan was the second piece of work coming out of the finding our purpose. There was absolutely no point trying to plan strategically until we understood more about the organisation we wanted to be than the way it was described to us in a Victorian charter. So first of all, to finish the silk bit, we then took it out on a roadshow around the country, testing it with members. And it was quite clear that members were happier because they started to understand. The question that I always used to get was, what does SEPA do for me? And for them, it was a very simple answer to that question. So we then took the purpose back and went through a similar exercise. And that's to look at each of those and make some decisions about what is it that we can now do as an organisation for our members under these four headings of our purpose? And how do we turn that into a strategic plan that we can then deliver operationally? So if you were to look at SEPA's strategic plan, it's, it always speaks back to status, influence, learning, and community. We test everything that we say that we're going to do against those. We do no more than three things in each of those categories. So the strategic plan is effectively uh, a statement of 12 things that we are doing for our members at the, at the highest level. Each of those then obviously unpacks into all sorts of activities, projects, and tasks that we undertake, but 12 things that we do for our members at, at the, the strategic level. And then we have a litmus test, and our litmus test is, so I, I also talk about SEPA being an inclusive membership organisation. Now, that that's not necessarily the way we talk about inclusivity in that uh, diversity and inclusivity sense. So, so here I mean, and it goes back to when I used to work in further education, We had a philosophy, if you like, that inclusive learning meant placing the learner at the centre of the learning process. So every decision you make about curriculum or lesson planning, the test is what is the impact on the learner? So so at SEPA, we translate that into inclusive membership. The question we ask ourselves against everything that we say that we're going to do is how does this benefit the member? How does this impact on the member? What will the member think about this? And if we answer any of those questions negatively, if it doesn't pass that test, we don't do it. The member has to think positively about why we've said we're doing what we're doing. I hope through that I've brought a sense of purpose and planning to SEPA that wasn't there when I came. I'm not classically trained in terms of being a senior leader. I've I've stumbled my way through this space. I've done a lot of reading on the way. So I don't know whether it stands up in terms of the way other people work. It works for us. And it is a framework that my council is now very comfortable with. I think it particularly works for the way I'm governed only by patent attorneys. It has to make sense 
to them and the way that they see the world in that very structured, very organized way. They're not very good at grasping concepts that perhaps aren't grounded. I think I get kind of how the purpose and the strategy connect, very tight linkage. Um, I am kind of interested to hear where in that journey any of the surprises have been. You absolutely nailed the questions that cut to the chase. I think people would be my first answer. So I learned fairly early on, particularly at SEPA, again, in, in the same way that I've seen a significant change in staff, there's also been a significant change in my council. I have a council of 27. There are probably just a handful of people on that now that were there 10 years ago uh, because they couldn't necessarily um, always welcome the change that was happening around them. So I think early on I learned that people are blockers, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I've, I've never seen blocking in, in any change process, in any planning process as being a bad thing because it means underpinning that blockage, there's a real sense of there is something wrong here. And we need to understand what that is, whether it is a real concern that we need to attend to, or whether this is something that is never going to sit well with an individual or a group. And therefore, we need to find a way of helping them come to terms with that and not to block it in the future. And I think I've had to do all of those things. So even the process of coming to something that felt like a purpose for SEPA was something they couldn't engage with. Because for them, we're 130 years old as we were then. We have a charter. The charter tells us what we're going to do. Why do we need to do this? And you can bring some of those people around. And others, you have to say goodbye to them in the piece somewhere, usually voluntarily because they decide that it's time for them to, to move away from something that they're not particularly able to engage in anymore. That was one of my earliest things that I learned was that it, it's largely about people. but And not just on the, the blockage side. I've been very, very fortunate to work with some quite inspirational, transformational presidents while I've been at SEPA. And without their support, I couldn't have possibly achieved the things that we've achieved. There was no planning in that. They just happened to be right people at the right time. Or maybe maybe they were right people at the right time because they, they liked what they were seeing and decided that was the time for them to step up to the plate and become president and to be part of this kind of piece of, me, of me moving super forwards. Never underestimate the turmoil of wide-scale organisational change when that necessarily means a complete change of staff, which is effectively the position that I'd put myself in. And I think I probably underestimated just how dramatic that would be for the organisation. Um, because people have been there a long time. They had um, connected relationships with uh, others. And um, and I, I was new to it. And for me, it was easy. We needed to change. It was very easy to come in and say, we're going to do this differently. But for them, it was very hard. I have this mantra that membership associations are only about people. So I think it always comes back to people in the end. What for you was the most difficult part of all that? Credibility. I think I was concerned that not being of their world and just determining fairly early on that there needed to be quite seismic change. Uh, otherwise, I couldn't have stayed. It was my reality. And I was very different to anything that had gone before me at SEPA. This chap, me, coming in, saying that everything wasn't right with the world and saying that he knew best. I think I knew within the first three months what I needed to do, but I didn't make a start on it for two years. And I think that's because I spent two years, and I needed to spend two years, building up my credibility helping them to understand they could trust me, helping them to understand that there were things that they had always done as a council that they could now let go of because they had a chief executive. Yeah, onboarding myself would be the modern way uh, without anyone to help me to do that. There's no textbook. Maybe I, maybe me and others 
need to do something about this. When I created and built up the Institute for Learning, and when I decided to turn SEPA around quite dramatically, there's no textbook for setting up a membership association in the UK. There's nowhere you can go. And that's where organisations like Institute for Association Leadership, at MEMCOM, a professional network that I belong to, that's where these networks of senior leaders come into their own, really, because I think I was only able to do what I've done at SEPA because I was able to go back to groups of people who I had built relationships with and could have conversations in a candid, trusted environment that I couldn't necessarily do in the immediacy of my workplace because I didn't have those relationships. I do now, but I didn't then have those relationships with my governors. Yeah. Yeah. Be a very interesting topic to explore almost separately. The role of membership bodies and professional bodies in this ever more chaotic and kind of fractured world. Intuition tells me there's some of them lacking. I couldn't even tell you where they are or what professions or what membership groups, but there's some of them lacking. Yeah, yeah. I think as membership associations, we very often serve our members. That's what we're about. So we can be very inward looking. And we're being challenged on this. And the the two big challenges, I think, have been around the whole equality, diversity, inclusivity agenda, where we can't resolve that on our own. We do need to look outside of SEPA, and we've done that. But we've only been able to do that in partnership with others and by looking at a wider social construct. So SEPA exists in the real world, and the real world has challenges in terms of, you know, if we aren't getting enough women, enough uh, black minority ethnic communities, if we're not attending to people with either visible or sort of not visible disabilities, if we're not seeing that in our membership, we are a recruiter of second professional identity. We are recruiting from universities, people who come through universities. So so we, we've had to look beyond that and try and try and influence the world a long way outside of our limited reach. That's been one experience where I'd say we've had to learn how to operate to a wider social purpose. The next one now is on sustainability. We're probably only really just starting to scratch the surface of what sustainability means. But again, we can't attend to that on our own. The pandemic's helped us hugely because it's changed the world of the way people work. And there's lots that we need to hang on to that. But also we need to now look for other examples of best practice in terms of how do you attend to issues about sustainability. And we can't do that as SEPA. We're too small. We need to do that within a much bigger framework, a much bigger network. Absolutely right. I think now is the time for membership associations to look beyond their limited structures. I absolutely agree with that. The other thing I'd add in is trade bodies. It's the same dynamic of are we here just to represent our members or do we have to look bigger? I think I think they both are facing exactly the same set of challenges around that. Um, what advice, if any, would you give to other leaders who are wrestling with their own organization's purpose and how to connect it with the strategy? There are a lot of people who've been there before you. There are a lot of solutions. And I don't think you can get to your solution without listening to the experiences of others. So for me, to get to my thinking about the three to five words and the inclusive membership thing, that I mean, that, that, that didn't come out of my head somewhere. That's by listening to people who I had a lot of time for, who had been doing the job for a long time before me, hearing them speak, going and visiting them in their workplaces and understanding how they work. So one of the things that I did in the first year at SEPA was to get out and spend time in membership associations that I hadn't previously spent time in, particularly the legal services ones. Yeah, literally. I Literally, I 
phone bombed people and email bombed people and said, you know, can, can I just come and spend some time on a council meeting, something like that, listen to how you work. So my biggest piece of advice would be get into an existing network, Institute of Association Leadership, Memcom, wherever it might be, because that's the way you will build your own network. And then before you do anything dramatic, anything drastic, spend time, just checks and balances with people that you've learned to trust. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice. Really great practical advice. Anything I haven't asked you about that you wish I had? Anything we haven't touched on? I guess the bit we've not touched on is how I've developed through this process and what it's meant for me. It took three times of CEPA offering me the job for me to say, yes, I'll take it, because it just seemed so bizarre a thing to come and do. So for me, I've had to relearn lots of things over the last 10 years and probably within that first two years, most critically. So I'm a great believer in reflective practice. I'm a teacher, you would expect me to say that. So I do spend a lot of time thinking about my approach to how I work and how that might be improved. One of the very first things I I did when I got to SEPA was to draw myself, it looks a bit like an octopus. So it's a kind of a body with eight-ish arms coming out of it, and those arms represent things. So if you looked at the arm that said my technical knowledge, if you like, of the new job I had, that arm was very, very small. I didn't understand the law. I particularly didn't understand the patent attorney profession. So I recognised early on that, you know, my managing people, that arm was quite, you know, they were, they were new and different people to me, but I've, I've, I'd done it for 25 years. That arm was quite long. So I think there is a job that a chief exec needs to do, particularly one who takes on a first chief exec's role or a new chief exec's role in a world that's very alien to them, is to go through this process of understanding, if you like, your own strengths and weaknesses. For me, it's the tentacles on an octopus and how you address the short ones. So if we just take the technical knowledge, in the same way that I went out and spent time in professional membership associations that I thought, thought would help me, I went out and spent time in my members' offices to see how they lived, how they worked, what the world meant to them. I think the other piece of this pie, if you like, is the need to develop as an individual. You know, I have a professional identity. I'm a professional association senior leader now. That's that's who I am. I need to understand what that means and to be able to interrogate my own competence and my own knowledge and always be prepared to fill the gaps. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Lee, one of the words you've used throughout this discussion, which I think is a really important word, both for individuals and for organizations as identity. Who do I see myself as? And particularly, as I think you pointed out, I think it's a great sort of topic. I'm glad you brought it up is the challenges when someone's shifting identity. In in lots of careers, that shift to being, I'm now the chief exec, there's no more up to go from here is a huge identity shift, as I'm sure you've experienced. But I think you're also pointing to, you know, sometimes just recognizing that this now puts me into a different identity and I've got to grapple with that. I think it's really great. There's a sense that identity is singular and it and it's not. Mm. I've talked to you about my members' identity. Now, I look at that as them being scientists and lawyers, but there's, there's more to that. Some of them are running businesses. Identity is actually, I, I don't know whether it's a real word or not, but I use multicotomous. So... <laughs> So identity is multicotomous. It has many aspects and you need to understand and own. So if we're, if we're talking about professional identity, you need to understand and own each of the bits of your identity that makes you that person at that moment in time. So so what is it that makes me the chief executive CEPA? What are my elements of identity that enables me to be able to do that? And, and again, coming back to the, the professional development question, you need to be able to look for 
strengths, weaknesses, to be able to develop the bits that you're not so good at. No, that's a great observation. Absolutely great. It's been just a great, great pleasure to hear what you've had to say and to hear about the journey you've been on. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Thank you, Baldwin. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.